0: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get
1: your podcasts. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change, so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with Watson X Governance. Learn more at ibm.com/governance. IBM. Let's create.
2: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And as I've mentioned on recent shows, we are entering a new era of video game consoles. And that has a lot of people excited. Though I have already started seeing reports of problems with optical drives both for the Xbox Series X and the PS5. So that's not great. Which serves as a good reminder that sometimes it pays to hang back just a little bit when new hardware comes out just to see if there are any you know, bugs or issues that still need working out. That way you can purchase version 1.1 or whatever and hopefully avoid those problems. You know, I'm thinking of things like the infamous red ring of death, that kind of stuff where the early adopters bear the brunt of it. They end up getting the faulty hardware and now you have to go through the whole process of getting stuff repaired or replaced. I like to skip that and kind of swoop in afterward. But still, if it weren't for the early adopters, none of us would have the consoles anyway. The consoles have video games on my mind, is what I was trying to say, and I thought it was a really good idea to jump into a new deep dive on a video game studio I had yet to to tackle. This time, I thought it would take a good, long look at Ubisoft. Or is it Ubisoft? I'm, I'm kidding. I've actually watched videos of Ubisoft employees saying the name, and there is no standardized pronunciation even within the company. Some of them say Ubisoft, some of them Ubisoft. I'm going to go with Ubisoft because, well, to me that sounds more French. The company's history has a lot of drama packed into it, from attempted takeovers to Allegations of sexual misconduct to a reputation for terrible production crunch times and more. In fact, I'm actually recording this just days after there was this confusing event in which employees at the company's Montreal branch had evacuated their building, some of them barricading themselves on the rooftop, before authorities determined that there was no actual threat present. But we'll get to that in a, a future episode. Ubisoft is known for some prestige titles like Assassin's Creed and Far Cry, so it might surprise you to learn that the video game company was founded by a family business that supplied farming equipment to farmers in France. Yeah, farmers, I'm not making that up. It was the early 1980s, and five brothers, Yves, Michel, Gerard, Christian, and Claude Guillemont, would rotate through various jobs at their father's store in Brittany, France. That's in the northwest section of France, kind of across the English Channel from England. And they carried all sorts of of supplies, including machinery parts for, like, heavy farm machinery. Now, I say this so that you don't think of it as some sort of quaint, you know, mom-and-pop shop. This was big business. But by the 1980s, the profit margins for selling equipment like that were starting to get fairly narrow, so it was harder to stay in business. And the brothers looked around to see how they might diversify the family business's product line, perhaps by finding some products that have a much larger profit margin than, say, tractor parts. At the time, the personal computer industry was starting to kick into a new gear, And it had begun in the mid-1970s, but at that time it was almost exclusively the domain of hobbyists. A few years later, there were a ton of different computer companies in this burgeoning industry. Here in the States, we're familiar with names like Apple and Commodore and Atari and maybe Tandy and a few others. In Europe, there were a couple of other computer companies at play, like Sinclair or Amstrad, both out of the UK. Uh, The Amstrad had just recently debuted in 1984, and the brothers saw that it was starting to gain popularity in France, but they also saw something else that was unusual. If you ordered computers or computer software from a French distributor It cost way more money than if you ordered the exact same stuff direct from the UK, and that opened up an opportunity. Their store could become a retailer for computer software in addition to, you know, farming equipment. It sounds like an odd combination, but that's kind of how things unfolded. But then the brothers decided that their best course of action was to create a mail-order business rather than just try to convert the shop into a true farming and computer software type business, you know, like you do. The brothers founded a new company in 1984 to oversee mail orders. They called it Guillemot Informatique. The business proved successful, and the following year, they formed the Guillermo Corporation to expand into the area of computer hardware, in addition to software. This also proved to be successful. And by 1986, the corporation was earning around 40 million francs. So, this was before the European Union and the emergence of the euro. And so, we have to factor in exchange rates and stuff into the value of the franc relative to the US dollar, which fluctuated a lot in 1986. So, I guess I'm going to say that they were bringing in somewhere between 5 and 10 million US dollars in 1986, which is a pretty princely sum. If we adjust for inflation, it would be somewhere between 12 million and 24 million dollars. Because they were able to buy software and hardware at much lower cost from the UK than from other French distributors, they could also price their products at a lower cost to consumers without eating too much into the profit margin. So they were essentially undercutting the competition. In 1986, computer games were starting to become a real commodity again. Uh, The market had crashed hard a couple of years earlier, mostly in video game consoles, but computer games were also affected. But the computer game industry made a pretty fast recovery. While people were a bit more cautious about consoles at first, computers had a totally different value proposition. You could do useful stuff on computers, right? You could have a word processor or something, and you could do worky work on a computer. It was just cool that programmers could also make games for computers, and the brothers saw an opportunity. They were already distributing video games as part of their software business, and they saw how popular it was, but they could also form a video game developer studio, a company that actually makes games. Part of the motivation for starting up a development company was that young programmers in France had approached the brothers with either completed games or ideas for games. The software industry in France was still very young, and there were few opportunities for programmers at that time in the country. So the company decided that this was a risk worth taking, but it would require a new organization, a new company dedicated to game development. On March 28, 1986, the brothers Guillemont founded the Ubi Software. Entertainment SA. And depending on the source you look at, the original name for the company was broken up into two parts, with Ubi and Soft being distinct words, though lots of other sources just pair them together as Ubisoft. To be fair, their logo made it clear it was Ubi Soft, two words. And for many years, that's essentially how official company communications spelled the name of the company. Now, Soft. Clearly comes from software, but what is Ubi? Well, that also depends upon which source you cite. Now, most claim uh, that Ubi stands for ubiquity, meaning omnipresent or found everywhere. Uh, That's what Ubisoft Montreal tweeted that the Ubi stood for when someone asked them outright, so it seems pretty definitive. But other sources point to a more regional explanation for the origin of the company name, and that was that UBI stood for Union des Bretons Independents, the Union of Independent Bretons, as in people from Brittany. Now, according to an interview that Christian Guillemot sat in for uh, back in 2014, his brother Gerard Guillemot was the one who suggested UBI because he thought it sounded good. And Yves Guillemot, had given the ubiquity answer in another interview. So I'm willing to go with ubiquity being the origin. However, I would not be surprised to find out that the sound of the name came first and then the meaning followed afterward. That's also possible. I'm not saying that's what happened. I'm just saying it wouldn't surprise me. Now, the brothers had also made an interesting decision when it came to the headquarters for this company. Their other businesses were located out of Paris at this point, but Ubisoft would be different after a few months. Originally, they worked out of the same sort of Parisian offices, but shortly thereafter, the brothers decided to establish Ubisoft, the video game development company, in a chateau in Brittany. And when I say chateau... I'm talking about the real deal. Think of something that sits somewhere between castle and mansion, and you're on the right track. Now, according to the founders, this was largely a marketing strategy to attract programmers who wanted to work in a different setting than your typical office building. You could work in a chateau. Ooh la la. And according to Ubisoft's executive director of Worldwide Studios, Christine Berges-Cernard, there was another motivation for putting the HQ in a chateau. One that might, in retrospect, be viewed with some disapproval, perhaps? In an interview with Game Informer, Christine said, We also thought it would be great to have a place where we could actually lock all of our developers together so that they could develop games and finish them. It was not always easy when you had a bunch of 18 or 19 year olds to realize that when you start a game and you start talking to the press about it and you start investing into it, you have to deliver. So the first aim was to make sure that everybody was under the same roof so we could have everybody contained in a way end quotation. So, yikes. With the benefit of a more heightened awareness of things like development, crunch, and autonomy, which I'm sure we'll touch on again as we go through this history, that kind of perspective takes on a much more sinister meaning. But I want to be fair. It's not at all an an unusual tactic for tech companies in general to kind of go this route. Uh, not Maybe not this extreme, but it's not unusual. Microsoft was famous for doing stuff like buying pinball and arcade machines to put in the employee break room so that the developers over at Microsoft would find reasons to stick around the office for longer hours. Uh, Google kept chefs on hand to prepare breakfast, lunch, and dinner, thus removing the need for people to go home to have meals. Uh, The tech world is no stranger to finding ways to discourage workers from, you know, having a life outside of work. The company hired on programmers and a leadership team for all the usual stuff, like marketing, for example. And at first, the focus was purely on the French market, so keep that in mind when I talk about sales figures in a second. So the company got started in March 1986, by the end of the year, they had published several titles, including Zombie, uh, Z-O-M-B-I, Cineclap, Fer et Flamme, Mask, and a developer tool called Graphic City, which was designed to help programmers edit sprites. Uh, A sprite is a two-dimensional bitmap image that can integrate into a larger scene. So a lot of early computer and console games used sprites to represent, say, the player character and you would be able to move around within the larger background world of the video game, whatever it might be. Zombie gets the credit for Ubisoft's first in-house game. In that game, you control a group of characters who are exploring a shopping mall that is infested with, well, zombies... In this way, it was taking elements of other popular computer games of the time, like Bard's Tale or Wizardry, where you would control a group of characters exploring a fantasy setting, and then combining that with the setting from George Romero's classic Dawn of the Dead movie— There's also a little bit of Oregon Trail kind of going on here because you would control crosshairs uh, after you would hit a Use icon to activate your gun, assuming you had one in your inventory. Then you would aim at zombies that were walking across your field of view from one side of the screen to the other, and you would fire to take them down before they would stop and turn and attack you. It wasn't quite at the level of a first-person shooter, but you could see elements that would evolve into that genre. One great addition is that should one of your player characters lose all their hit points and die, they would become a zombie and would become an enemy to the surviving characters, which I think is kind of nifty. And the developers included posters on the walls that said things like, Are you a programmer? Contact Ubisoft. So that was cheeky. Ubisoft developed the game for platforms like the Armstrad CPC and the ZX Spectrum computer, among others. By January 1987, Ubisoft had sold around 5,000 copies of Zombie. So here's where we address the differences in scale from the mid-80s to today. If a video game development studio, even a relatively modest independent studio, were to see 5,000 titles sold after a few months of launch, it would be a pretty big flop, But this was back in the early days of programming, when it was possible for a small team of three or four people to put together a full game. And these were games that were coming from big, established studios. So, kind of the equivalent of what we would think of as a AAA title today. Also at this point, Ubisoft was only selling games within France, which meant they were hitting a pretty small potential market. After all, only a relatively few number of households owned a computer in the first place, and Ubisoft was only focusing on their own home country. But the early success encouraged the leaders of Ubisoft, who became determined to expand into other markets— At first, they took aim at Spain and West Germany. Keep in mind, this is before the reunification of East and West Germany into Germany. In addition, Ubisoft began to form partnerships with other developers, and so it became an official distribution partner within France. When we come back, we'll talk more about the early days of Ubisoft's existence, including some very early road bumps. But first, let's take a quick break. That's C-O-N-C-U-R
1: com. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic.
2: You're probably careful with your personal information, but what about the other places that have it? Like the doctor's office that mixed up your files. They have your social security number. The power company that mistakenly cut your service has your payment info and last three addresses. And the hotel that lost your reservation has your passport info. Your information is in endless places out of your control. Any one of them could accidentally expose you to hackers and identity theft through lax security, breaches, or simple mistakes. But LifeLock monitors millions of data points every second and alerts you to a wide range of threats. If your identity is stolen, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will fix it, guaranteed, or your money back, with plans covering up to $3 million for stolen funds and expenses. Mistakes happen. Don't let not having protection be one of them. Save up to 40% your first year at lifelock.com/iheart. That's lifelock.com/iheart to save up to 40%.
1: Terms apply.
0: So in 1987, Ubisoft was developing games like a spy hunter-like vehicular combat game called Asphalt. You controlled a giant truck that had a, a turret gun mounted on it. They also had a Pingo-like game called Mange Kelou, in which you controlled a red bird that could push rocks around a maze to avoid enemies. By the way, my French pronunciation I know is terrible. I realize that. I'm gonna do my best, but it will be bad. Ubisoft was also distributing games from other companies around this time, and some of those games ended up being really big titles, like Akari Warriors and Commando, which were pretty popular, and those would end up selling thousands of copies within France. Yves Guillemot would become CEO of the company, in short order, and... One other big change was also coming. The company determined that the Chateau in Brittany, while impressive and working like a treat as a way to entice people to come and actually you know, work as a developer for Ubisoft, it was just plain expensive to maintain. Too expensive. It turns out that really old buildings require a lot of maintenance and that heating a building that wasn't designed to accommodate modern heating methods is pretty expensive. So the company decided to let the lease on the property expire at the end of it, and they decided to shift operations back to Paris. And from what I can tell, the initial plan was to kind of share space with some of the other Guillemont brother companies. Now this didn't go over great with all the developers, Paris is an expensive city to live in, and some programmers balked at the prospect of moving from relatively inexpensive Brittany to extremely expensive Paris. And it would mean many of them would have to secure an apartment in a less desirable part of the city to stay within their budgets. A few of them declined to make the move, and Ubisoft would just kind of keep the door open for collaborations, allowing some programmers to even work remotely. Now, in those cases, it wasn't like the remote programmer was a full-time employee, but rather that Ubisoft would look at any work that the programmers produced to see if anything might warrant an investment. One of those people was a guy named Michel Ancel, who was quite young and whose family had moved from Montpellier to Brittany in order for him to work at Ubisoft. Paris was not a feasible option for the family, and they decided to relocate back to Montpellier. But Ancel's talent was undeniable, and the Guillemot brothers convinced him to keep communications open should he have anything to show them. Ancel got to work on some general concepts and later partnered with a programmer named Frédéric Howde to create a sort of -of proof-of-concept game. And the two would present their idea to Ubisoft, And it definitely got the company's attention. They could see a lot of promise in the concept, but it would require a great deal more work and several more years to bring it into existence as a fully-fledged game. We'll come back to that. In the meantime, Ubisoft continued to develop, publish, and distribute games. In 1990, the company published a port of its first game, Zombie, to the Atari ST computer system. While the company was churning out game titles, most of these wouldn't be familiar to people outside of France, and and definitely the familiarity drops off once you get outside of Europe, as they were still catering primarily to those markets. Also, just as a side note, there is a Wikipedia page that's supposed to be a list of Ubisoft games, but I can tell you that a lot of the entries, at least for the years between 1986 and 1990, are just plain wrong. Ubisoft is listed as developer for games that it did not develop, though in some cases the company would develop a later game in a series based off the one that shows up on that list. Anyway, just a reminder that Wikipedia is a great starting point for research, but you should always go beyond that, because sometimes the information there is just plain wrong. Anyway, I'm not going to go through an exhaustive list of all these early games, as most of them have faded into obscurity in the passing years, and there wouldn't be much value to that. That being said, I'm immediately going to break my own rule to talk about one game I learned about while researching this. I had never heard of this game before. This game is called Fred. You play as a big strong knight named Fred, who at the very beginning of the game gets transformed into a tinier version of himself. Then you must face enemies like gnomes, who for the life of me look like garden gnomes, And there are other baddies in there too, like spiders and ravens and stuff, but it's the gnomes that sell this for me. The gameplay is interesting. It kind of reminds me of Ghosts and Goblins, or Ghouls and Ghosts if you prefer, that's another title in that same series, but one cool thing is that the levels have a cheat to them to give them a little bit of depth. The game is a platformer and it's a side scroller so you're looking at everything in profile and enemies typically travel along specific planes of depth but there are multiple planes in every level so in other words you can travel left or right on a plane that's closest to the screen that would be the one you know closest to the player Uh, Or one that's maybe slightly further back, or maybe one that's even further back, close to the background. However, that also means that it can be kind of tricky to figure out which plane of depth an enemy is on. It might look like you're both lined up, but one of you is actually a little further back than the other with respect to the, the, you know, your point of view. And so in those cases, your attacks won't hit them, and most of the time their attacks won't hit you either and you have to each be on the same plane of depth in order to fight each other, and that's not always apparent. However, the attempt at adding depth would be another indicator of game elements that were coming down the line in the future, just as Zombie was hinting a little bit at first-person shooter elements. These were decent ideas that were executed upon in, let's say, limited success. Uh, That's a kind way of putting it. Fred from what I've seen, does not look like it was a particularly playable game. Around 1992, Ubisoft established its own internal studio in Paris, uh, by which I mean the company established a real space for programmers to come and work in a studio. In addition, the company would open its first studio outside of France, establishing a space in Bucharest, Romania. This gave the company access to more developer talent. Uh, so, remember Michel Ancel and Frédéric Howd? They presented their work to Ubisoft with an early build of what would evolve into the game Rayman, a platformer-style game with a super cute protagonist. Now, those of you familiar with Rayman know that it would go on to become an enormous franchise, spawning more than 40 games that were either sequels or spinoffs or tie-ins, It would become the big early hit for Ubisoft, and it would put the company on the larger video game map through most of Europe. And it started off so small. The very earliest concept for Rayman was to be destined for the Atari ST. That was what it was originally going to be programmed for. But that was back when Ancel was just working on it by himself. Once Frederic joined that changed the pair of developers worked on their project for ubisoft with the goal of producing a game for a system that would never actually emerge they were working on creating the title for the Super Nintendo CD Peripheral System, which was originally a cooperative project between Nintendo and Sony, but in 1991, Nintendo famously dropped a bombshell at CES and announced that it would instead partner with the Dutch tech company Philips to develop the CD Peripheral, and it would be dumping Sony in the process. And it was really this event that encouraged Sony executive Ken Kutaragi to take the progress that he had made for the proposed Nintendo CD system and pivot that toward the internal development of Sony's own video game console system, which would evolve into the PlayStation. And you can hear more about that story in the episodes I did about the history of the PlayStation. Uh, Those episodes published earlier this year. And it's a crazy story. Anyway, at this stage, Philips was still supposedly working with Nintendo to develop this CD peripheral for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Only, no peripheral ever came out. Nintendo never announced that development for the system had been canceled. The company never gave a release date or a proposed price or even a list of games that were in development for the system. It just kind of faded from public consciousness Because the next generation of video game consoles was starting to creep forward, and really it was a matter of a lost cause. At that point, it just made more sense to shift resources to developing the next Nintendo console as opposed to a peripheral for an older console. And so the developers would need to change direction for Rayman. They needed to go to a different platform. The Nintendo CD system was a no-go. Around that same time, Ubisoft made... Huge investment. They opened up another in house studio in Paris and they hired on more than 100 programmers. The little project of Rayman grew into a fully fledged next generation studio title. Ansel would continue his animation design and the developers were building a game around it. And thus we got Rayman, a cute character who has a body, he's got feet, he's got hands, he's got a head, but he doesn't have a neck. He doesn't have arms, he doesn't have legs, so he has these sort of free-floating appendages. And that meant the designers could give Rayman really interesting abilities, like throwing a punch with his fist traveling halfway across the screen, potentially. So they made a creative platformer game based around this little fella. Now initially, the first platform the project would focus on was the Atari Jaguar. Now that, you know, the Nintendo thing had fallen through, they thought, let's look at this new console, the Atari Jaguar. Now, a lot of you out there may not know a whole lot about that console because it didn't have a particularly illustrious or long lifespan. It launched first in North America in 1993, and within just three years, Atari would discontinue the system. The Jaguar was a cartridge-based console, though Atari would try to extend the life of the flailing system later by releasing a CD-ROM add-on. But that means that any game for the system had to be hard-coded onto a circuit board that was housed inside a cartridge that you would then plug into the console. If Ubisoft had only ever made a version of Rayman for the Atari Jaguar, there's a really good chance that no one would even know what Rayman was at this point. Ubisoft itself would not be the company that it is. It likely would have made little to no impression due to that small market size of Jaguar owners. But fortunately both for the company and for gamers that's not what happened. Michel Guillemot recognized the potential of the game and had a hunch that Sony's PlayStation console which was on the way but not yet on the market was going to be a huge deal. So part of the work that those 100-plus developers were doing was to create a version of Rayman for the PlayStation that would be ready to go as soon as the console was hitting store shelves. The prevailing feeling was that to compete globally in the platform game market, especially to go up against established Japanese video game companies, they would need to time the launch to a console launch. They would need to tie it to that. Otherwise, Rayman would likely get left behind by the numerous games coming out of other places like Japan. And it totally worked. When Rayman shipped, there were only nine games available on the PlayStation. As Yves Guillemont would wryly observe, customers didn't have much choice but to try this one. The company would also publish the title for other systems, like the Sega Saturn, uh, for PCs. Uh, This was at the tail end of the MS-DOS days, just before Windows would really take over. And then, much later on, for more recent platforms, like iOS and Android, but obviously those came much, much later. The game was a big success in Europe, though it met with a more modest reception in the United States. In 1995, the same year Rayman debuted, Ubisoft established a new department within the company, the editorial department, with a man named Serge Ascouet, named as the head of that department. Serge started with the company back in 1988, originally serving as a video game tester after applying for the gig through a newspaper ad. As head of editorial, Serge would be the voice of authority on game development. If you wanted a game made, you had to get approval from him first. He could take a look at your work and demand changes or even cancel a project outright. He would play a key role in the direction of the company, and more recently, he was in the news that paint him in a truly negative light. Now, I'll get to those in in an upcoming episode, as the allegations of his behavior didn't really become public until this year, that is, 2020. The important thing to keep in mind is that he was effectively the gatekeeper of games coming out of the studio. If he didn't like it, it wasn't going to stick around for very long. Rayman's success marked a real turning point for Ubisoft, one year after the game's launch, Ubisoft would list on Paris's secondary stock exchange and raise more than $80 million worth of investments as well. The company would expand once again, opening up a studio in France, another one, and a new international development studio in Shanghai, China in 1996, and then they opened up the famous Ubisoft Montreal in Quebec, Canada in 1997. They would follow that up with two new studios in Spain and Italy, and it really set the stage for the next phase of Ubisoft's history. We'll learn more about that in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience
2: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest
1: on balance transfers for a year. Apply at Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
2: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart, and play all your music, radio, and podcasts with the new Roku Pro series. Your senses aren't better. Your TV
0: is. So, about that Ubisoft Montreal office. Ubisoft was looking to expand into North America. An office in Montreal would work well, as Montreal is a French-speaking city, though the dialects of Quebec and France are, uh, very different. In addition, Montreal was looking to create incentives to attract tech companies to open offices in the city, having struggled as other industries like textiles were starting to flounder. After some negotiations, Ubisoft was able to get a pretty sweet deal to establish a studio in Montreal. When it opened in 1997, about half of the 50 employees of the studio actually originally came from the Parisian office of Ubisoft. The other half were locals, and according to later interviews, most of them had no clue how to develop software, or at the very least, video games. They were being brought in as kind of blank slates, learning on the job how to make games. The studio initially focused at least primarily on licensed titles. So in other words, the games coming out of Ubisoft Montreal were mostly games based off of existing IP from other companies like DC Comics or Disney. Sometime around then, Ubisoft also established a development office in New York. I can't get a whole lot of information about the specifics around this, but they did have an office of developers in New York City at one point. One of the projects that that team tackled was a concept called The Drift. Now, The Drift never made it as a full game, but elements of The Drift would become really important in later Ubisoft games. For example, The Drift had a modular weapon that could do all sorts of stuff, like be used as a grappling hook. It also had stealth mechanics and surveillance cameras that you could deploy within the game. It had crowd AI behaviors that made crowds of non-player characters react to you depending on your own behavior. So if you pulled out a weapon, for example, in a public space, the crowd would react to that. Or if you were running through a crowd, the crowd would react to that. The New York team tried to kind of pull all this together to make a cohesive game. But while the individual ideas were good ones, no real game emerged from the collection of ideas. There was a last-ditch effort to pitch this concept as the basis for a James Bond-style game, like an actual licensed James Bond game, but that ultimately went nowhere. So then Ubisoft headquarters would decide to close down the New York office, with many of that development team moving to Montreal to join that team there, and the drift would be put on ice for the time being. In 1999, Michel Guillemont would found another video game publisher, this one called Gameloft. Rather than a competitor to Ubisoft, Gameloft had another market in mind. The internet was in a boom phase. Keep in mind, this is getting toward the peak of the dot-com bubble. And the main focus for Gameloft was for web-based content, and then later on for mobile games. Gameloft licensed IP held by, you guessed it, Ubisoft, and a few other web-based game companies would do the same, and soon those licensing fees were making up the majority of Ubisoft's revenue, which in turn pumped up the company's stock value fivefold. Flush with cash, Ubisoft made a move that would really help it break into the North American market. It acquired another company. Longtime listeners of tech stuff will recognize this strategy. Some companies find that the solution to expansion is just in acquiring other companies rather than building things out on their own. <laughs> cough, Comcast, cough. For some companies, This kind of boils down into buying growth, which seems a little cynical of me, I guess. But for Ubisoft, it was a means to tap into a market that had thus far remained elusive and to cover some of the gaps in Ubisoft's own expertise. Ubisoft's acquisition was a game development studio out of North Carolina called Red Storm. Red Storm Studios was only four years old at the time. It was founded by Doug Littlejohns and Tom Freakin. Clancy. The company took its name from a Clancy novel named Red Storm Rising, and it launched out of and then absorbed an earlier game studio called Vitus Studios. Between its founding and 2000, the studio had published a few titles, but the one that really caught fire was the PC tactical first-person shooter game Rainbow Six. The game eventually would come out for numerous other platforms, including the PlayStation, the Sega Dreamcast, Mac computers, and more. The title was a phenomenal success, and the studio was still relatively small, which made it a perfect entry point for a company that wants to get into the North American market. Red Storm was at a crossroads. According to marketing manager Wendy Beasley, The studio was in the mindset that it needed to either be acquired to acquire some other company or to go public. Ubisoft and Red Storm first initiated talks about an acquisition sometime around E3 in 2000. Uh, E3, for those unfamiliar, is a video game industry conference. By August of that year, the paperwork was signed and Red Storm had become a 100% owned subsidiary of Ubisoft. Now, in the announcement of that acquisition the messaging was made clear that Red Storm would continue to operate as if it were a truly independent studio. In addition, the developers at Red Storm could potentially take over Ubisoft titles and franchises that were a better fit for the American developers. One big change was that Tom Clancy left the company, though he would still license his properties to Red Storm, which was a good thing, as games inspired by his work would prove to be some of the biggest successes for Ubisoft during this part of the company's history. So now, Ubisoft had access to licensed material from Tom Clancy. Ubisoft Montreal had talent and assets from the recently closed New York office. At some point... The puzzle pieces clicked into place, and Ubisoft Montreal got to work on a Tom Clancy game in which an operative would complete missions using stealth and special equipment to navigate levels while trying to avoid detection. Most of the technology from The Drift would come into play in this game. In addition, the team had a directive from Ubisoft HQ, they needed to make a game that could go toe-to-toe with the PlayStation Konami game Metal Gear Solid 2 out of the legendary video game developer Hideo Kojima. And that is how Tom Clancy's Splinter Cell was born, as a convergence of technologies and opportunities, which I think is pretty cool. It was an Xbox exclusive, and it helped to establish the console's legitimacy as well as the company's place in the North American video game market and it would set off a chain of events that would push Ubisoft's Montreal studio on a path to tackle increasingly ambitious games. There was a lot going on around this time. In 2001, while the Montreal team was hard at work finishing Splinter Cell, Ubisoft acquired the entertainment division from The Learning Company, which in turn had properties from earlier game companies like Strategic Simulations and Mattel Interactive, among others, in fact, I think this acquisition is what confused some of the editors on Wikipedia who put together that list I had mentioned earlier. One of the games that was mistakenly included on that list was the original Pool of Radiance game. That's an advanced Dungeons & Dragons licensed game that was published under the developer Strategic Simulations Incorporated in 1988. Now, I love that game, but it is definitely not an Ubisoft title. Ubisoft would later go on to make a game with a pool of Radiance name, a, a, a sequel at least in name, but it shared very little in common with the older title, and it got pretty mixed reviews as well. Anyway, that's me getting my dander up about Wikipedia again, so we'll leave it there. The important point here is that the acquisition did give Ubisoft the right to several franchises, including an old game that had been made for the Apple II called The Prince of Persia. Ubisoft Montreal had the task of creating a new game based off this concept of the original game that had come out decades earlier, and that was a platformer and puzzle game that had been created by a guy named Jordan Mechner. The Montreal team reached out to him, and he was reluctant to come on board after having a really bad experience with a Prince of Persia sequel that had happened, uh, Prince of Persia 3D. But persistence went out, and he would end up joining the team and become heavily involved in the project, becoming the head writer for the new game. Now keep in mind, this is also going on at the same time as the Splinter Cell development, so it was a really busy time in Montreal. One of the creative features of the Prince of Persia game was the incorporation of a rewind feature, so players could build up the capability to do a quick rewind of time so that If they made a mistake that would have led to disaster, they can activate that feature and rewind time just a short ways and then try it again. So you miss a jump, you rewind time, you try and make the jump again. The writers worked this capability into the story itself, making it a clever feature of not just the gameplay, but the mythology of the game world. And it was, in my mind, a stroke of brilliance. The resulting game was Prince of Persia The Sands of Time, which published in 2003. The game was a critical success, though it took a little bit longer for sales figures to follow suit. Now, I owned both Splinter Cell and Prince of Persia The Sands of Time for the Xbox, the original Xbox, and they were two of my favorite games of that console generation. Clearly, Ubisoft Montreal wasn't hurt by the fact that half of their starting employees had little to no experience in video game development. The team learned quickly, and they were turning out some real bangers for games. The Prince of Persia game made use of a game engine that Ubisoft had developed for a totally different project, one that was helmed by Michel Ancel, the guy who created Rayman. After working on numerous Rayman sequels, Ancel wanted to tackle something totally different, and that something would be a project called Beyond Good and Evil, a game in which the player controls a young woman as she tries to uncover a conspiracy in a science fiction setting. The game had a long and troubled development process back at Ubisoft HQ in France, and it included a nearly complete rewrite, and it would have ultimately debuted to lackluster sales, but it got really good reviews. The game was released on the then-current generation of video game consoles, which were the PlayStation 2 and the Xbox and the Nintendo GameCube, and also it came out for Windows. Much later on, it would also come to the Xbox 360 and the PS3. Over time, the reputation for the game would lead to better sales figures, but at first at least, it appeared to be a serious misstep. In retrospect, many at Ubisoft said that the failure largely rested on the company's marketing for the game. And we're going to conclude this part of our story with Ubisoft, two words, officially becoming Ubisoft, one word, and that happened on September 9th, 2003. Uh, The company also would replace its logo. Originally, its logo had been a large, maroon-pinkish UBI with the word soft written in white script on top of UBI. Uh, It had gone through a few other permutations of logos in the following years, but in 2003, we finally got the more familiar Swirl logo, which would remain the official logo for more than a decade. Uh, It changed again in 2017, but we'll get to that. So in our next episode... We'll continue the story of Ubisoft and talk about how some sharks in the games industry started to circle the studio just as it was really taking off on the global stage. But that will have to wait until next time. If you have suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes of Tech Stuff, reach out to me and let me know. The best way to do that is on Twitter, where I use the handle TechStuffHSW for the show. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
2: Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have 2% cash back on purchases and 0% interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at
1: Kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
2: You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer, like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like... Whoa. And...